does God change? Well, I hope our answer to that will be a a very firm no. Christians have always believed in a changeless God who is the same yesterday, today and um, I was very glad when I was writing this Johnny looked over my shoulder and typed in forever. So he does read his Bible. Um, God doesn't change like shifting sand, says James. God is the same. But that doesn't mean God is static. Most people's image of uh, the God of the Bible, outside of the church at least, comes from their experience of church architecture, I suspect. They look at churches and they think God is old, God is definitely unchanging. He may be impressive in a sort of retro um, way, but uh, he is clearly absolutely unmovable. Today he may be dwarfed, even besieged by some of the new gods of consumerism and entertainment and health that spring up and uh, dwarf little old God in that old uh, old building. Um, he may have a, an army that are manning the barricades against those uh, powerful gods. But uh, frankly, it's a dwindling army. We may be impressed by the fact that uh, they will uh, take their stand until the last man falls. But one thing the world is absolutely sure of, God doesn't move. God's church just stays where it is to live or die. And that is not, actually, the vision of God that the Bible gives. The God of the Bible is far from like an an immovable um, building. The God of the Bible is always on the move. An Old Testament vision that makes that very, very plain is Ezekiel's great vision of God. Ezekiel saw God enthroned on, a, on, a, 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 on an angelic chariot. And that chariot was um, manned by angels whose wings propel, propelled it along and it had special spherical wheels that allowed it to move in any direction at all, just as the angels wished. This was God on the move that Ezekiel saw, effortlessly responsive to his world, always actually one step ahead of his world. God moving forward, sideways, backwards, as he chose to do. That vision of God was not uppermost in the minds of the Jewish authorities as they spoke to Stephen. It should have been but it wasn't. It should have been because two weeks, as we saw two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit had come and miraculously enabled those ordinary disciples to speak in all sorts of languages so that people from all over the world could hear the good news of the Gospel and then could go back out to, uh, to, to that world. What greater vision of a God who is, who is driving his people out, who is moving on but they just didn't see it. The end of uh, Acts 6, 
we find uh, Stephen talking to uh, Jews who had come into Jerusalem from North Africa, from areas that would now be called uh, Turkey. Stephen here is continuing this mandate from God to move the gospel on into new areas. But these um, Jews are not particularly impressed. They knew where God was. That's why they'd come to Jerusalem. God is in the temple, they said. God is immovably fixed there. We have to come to him from the far reaches of the empire to worship him. God has given us internal instructions to live by in the Old Testament, they said. And those instructions involve building a nation around that temple in Jerusalem. It's an unfortunate difficulty for us that we live miles away from the temple. Because that's most of the time miles away from God. Don't try and tell us otherwise. God is irrevocably fixed to his temple and to his ancient law, they said. How could Stephen think that the unchangeable God would change his mind? They were so furious that they had um, Stephen arrested. Look at verses 12 to 14 in chapter 6. They stirred up the people and elders and teachers of the law, seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin, produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. We have heard him say that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that's the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Those witnesses may have been false in one sense, as Luke uh, pointed out, but uh, Stephen is going to um, uh, say very clearly that they were basically accurate in much of what they said. When they uh, accused him of speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses, in one sense, Stephen's going to put up his hand and say guilty as charged. No, Stephen says... The God of the Bible is actually always a God who is moving on and always a God who is calling his people to move on. It has never been his intention or his desire to stay fixed in one place. That is what we're going to learn this morning, mainly as we look at what Stephen tells these, um, uh, these people. He actually retells the story of the Old Testament in an abbreviated form, but frankly it's pretty long even for us uh, uh, this morning, so we're going to have to edit it down even more. He picks out just a few characters from the Old Testament story and he tells their story. He tells the story to point out this specific thing that God is always moving his people on. Firstly, he says, Abraham, remember, our great father, was a pilgrim. Verse 2. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, 
go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans, settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Firstly, Stephen says, notice God appeared to Abraham long before he was in the promised land. Where was God in Abraham's life? Well, God was out there in pagan Mesopotamia, says Stephen. And notice God calls Abraham to move to a place that he's never seen. Leave your country and your people, God said. Stephen's saying, you see, uh, to these people, you may see the promised land as, 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 as the land of your fathers, the land of your home, the land where God dwells. Frankly, Abraham saw it as a foreign land that he'd never seen before. Only later did it become the dwelling place of God. And says uh, Stephen, that, that pilgrimage of Abraham wasn't just a one-off in, in history that would never be repeated again. God made it plain even to Abraham that there would be a lot more travelling for his descendants to do. God spoke to him, verse 6, in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. Afterwards, they will come out from that country and worship me in this place. They're going to have to do it all over again. Be pilgrims all over again. And then, says uh, Stephen, uh, let's move on to uh, um, Abraham's uh, great-grandson, Joseph. Joseph, the dominant um, theme, certainly practically in his life, is that he was a victim, a pawn. Verse 9, the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, that's his brothers, and they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Now Joseph moved entirely against his will, frankly, away from the promised land to another country that again he had never seen, he did not know. But here is the point, Jewish leaders, God was with him. God enabled him, says Stephen, to prosper far from the promised land. Finally, actually, God enabled Joseph to rescue his whole family so that the whole family of God lived in Egypt for the rest of their lives. On the surface of it, Joseph may have been to be, seemed to have been just a bit of, bit of the world's flotsam, washed around from country to country, but God had his hand on him. God was as with him in Egypt as he had been with him in the Promised Land, and actually God, as he moved Joseph around, was achieving his great plans. God was on the move. Oh, let's, uh, let's try another hero. You accuse me of speaking against Moses, uh, says, says Stephen. Let's look at the life of Moses then. He grew up in that strange land in Egypt, in Pharaoh's household actually. When he was 40, he decided that it was time to rescue his people, verse 23. Moses was 40 years old and he decided to rescue his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought 
that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting and tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. What a mess. What a mess. Moses had tried to liberate these people and had failed utterly and had had to flee to one of the most God-forsaken places in the world, the desert of Midian. Verse 30. After 40 years in Midian, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. God was there. Had you forgotten that little bit of your history, says Stephen, to, the, uh, um, uh, to, to, to these Jewish authorities? God appeared to Moses in Midian, in the outback. More than that, he told Moses when he appeared to him on that little bit of apparently God-forsaken ground, miles from the Temple Mount, miles from the Promised Land, he told Moses that that land was holy. Verse 33. The Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. God gets about a bit, doesn't he, says Stephen. He was there with Abraham out in Mesopotamia calling him to move from place to place. He was there with Joseph when Joseph seemed to be just swept down to Egypt against his plans and prospered him and here he is again with Moses right out in the middle of nowhere with a flock of sheep only. In fact he has labelled that place holy. And Moses' role was once again to move God's people on. Verse 36 He led them out of Egypt, did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, remember the parting of the Red Sea as they were delivered from the Egyptians, and for 40 years as they wandered in the desert. The story of Exodus, the story of their flight from Egypt, to the parting of the Red Sea and the wandering in the desert is a story of God's people moving on. God is on the move. And more than that, just as Abraham had been warned that this would be a longer story of God's people being on the move, so Moses was promised there would be another person very, very like him who would come. Verse 37, This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from among your own people. Of course, he's talking about Jesus. Would Jesus perhaps be like Moses in that 
through him, the most unlikely places were revealed as being holy. A place where people could meet God. Would Jesus be like Moses in that through him, God's people could once again be led forward on a pilgrimage that twisted and turned and yet was always with God. Moses be, uh, Jesus be like Moses in that he took God's people from a sort of comfort zone in Egypt where they're not quite with God or where they should be but hey, it's not bad, there's good food and we can survive into the much more difficult desert which is the place God wants us to be. Well, there's Moses, says Stephen. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something else as well, he says moving from a personality this time to a structure. Let, let me talk for a minute about the tabernacle, says Stephen. When Moses led the people through that desert, God instructed Moses to build a large tent. Stephen calls it here the tabernacle of testimony, verse 44. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. This was, this was symbolically represented, God's dwelling place amongst them. This is, where they, this is where they went to meet with God. This is how they knew that God was with them because this great tent that, that symbolically housed God were, was with them. And it was a mobile tent. It was a mobile home. It went with them as they wandered in the desert. It went with them as they marched into the promised land, says Stephen. The tabernacle went with them as they moved up and down the promised land, defeating their enemies. God used a movable tent to symbolise his presence with them for hundreds of years. Indeed, Stephen points out, as this sermon goes on, that the impetus to, to move from this mobile tent to an immovable temple didn't come from God at all. It was David's idea first of all and it even took a generation for God to allow it to happen under the reign of Solomon. And from that moment on, from Solomon to the very end of the Old Testament era, um, prophet after prophet after prophet pointed out that in some ways a temple is a very inappropriate symbol for God. Look at what Isaiah says, says Stephen in, in verses 48 to, to uh, 50. The Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my home, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Where will my resting place be? Has not mine hand made all these things? How ridiculous to try and locate me in one place when I rule over the whole universe, says God. How ridiculous to try and build a house that symbolises my dwelling when I actually rule over the whole universe as if it's my footstool. So says Stephen. Do you see why I'm speaking against the temple? 
Bible does. God is now moving on, says Stephen, to these Jewish authorities. God is now moving out. God is now taking his gospel to the ends of the earth, just as he promised that he would always do. And frankly, a fixed temple in one land no longer suffices as a visual aid at all. Just doesn't cut it for a moving God. Well, that's the lesson that these uh, um, Jewish authorities needed to learn and that is a lesson that we need to learn today. God is a God who is always moving on. Still he is moving on today. We've often pointed out that globally God is moving on at the moment. Whilst churches in the West, by and large, struggle, God is pouring out his spirit in extraordinary ways in parts of the world like, like Africa. I mean, we heard, didn't we, Greg Bannister telling us how he went to Uganda to be involved in a mission and 2,000 people gave their life to the Lord. That is not unusual. That is what is happening in other parts of, uh, of the world. Perhaps even more significant than Africa is the way the church is growing in Asia in the, in, the, in the next generation or so, there's going to be a great struggle to decide what will be the, the central, dominant worldview in China, for instance. Will it be Confucianism? Will it be um, just old atheism in a slightly new garb? Or actually will Christianity take centre place, central place in the uh, hearts and minds? of the Chinese people. It's, it sounds an extraordinary possibility, but it could be so. The church is explosively growing at the moment. That would be extraordinary. God is moving on into new places, doing new things. And God is calling us here as a local church to be people fundamentally who are committed to Moving on. Now, four years ago, last, uh, uh, last Friday actually, um, we moved our Sunday morning services out of the church building. We've been here for four years and two days. And although it was stressful for, for, for some of us, it has, we have to acknowledge, been a major source of blessing for us as a church as we moved on in response to God, God has blessed us. Two and a half years ago, we altered our evening services to make them uh, um, more interactive. Now, if you go there, you will find people sitting around tables or on sofas, praying in small, small groups. And in many ways, that cultural change had its stresses as well. But that meeting has a vibrancy about it and it is growing as we have moved on culturally as a church. And that need for us to move on is not going to decrease, you know, if we are really to be people who are close to God's heart. Because our culture is changing and shifting at an extraordinary rate. You know, when they talk about global warming, they, they, um, they say that there are changes that have happened in the last 70 years in the atmosphere and so on that previously took 10,000 years 
to, uh, to happen. And I often think that's a metaphor for basically the way the world is changing in general. The rate of change is speeding up. We are in a period of flux at the moment which is going to last for a few decades at least as old certainties fade away and, uh, and, and new um, uh, understanding, new, new aspects of culture, new things are constantly being thrown at us. And God's church, you see, needs to be nimble. God's church needs to be responsive just as God himself says he is. And he moves on those, uh, uh, that, that mobile chariot in uh, this direction and that in Ezekiel's vision. So we are going to need to be people who are constantly prepared to reevaluate, constantly prepared to ask sharp questions of our life together as a church, constantly prepared to listen to God as he moves us forward. Are we prepared to move on? Now, 25 years ago, for instance, the NIV was published. It was a, it was a major um, statement by evangelicals that they were committed to moving on into a new world in which old forms of language just, just, just didn't cut it. Um, and uh, those of us who were um, young Christians um, in the early days of the NIV remember both how difficult it was for some to move away from the King James Bible in particular and how liberating it was for the, ch- for the church in the 1980s. Well, the sad truth is the NIV has come to feel increasingly antiquated 25 years later in many um, younger people's ears. Um, when the NIV tells us that Mary was with child, then unless we're well versed in um, uh, biblical idioms, we might be a little bit confused. When did you last hear someone saying that? When they were pregnant. Or when the NIV in Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. We sophisticated people who know our Bibles knows that it knows that uh, that verse is talking about blessed are all people, men and women, who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But actually, using men, male pronoun, to describe men and women, has now become awfully outdated. Indeed, uh, today, that phraseology raises hackles unnecessarily. Now, um, to, to some modern people, actually even the NIV seems as difficult to understand as for those of my generation found the King James Version to understand it. Sounds difficult for us who know our Bibles well to believe it. But try giving an NIV to people who know nothing. Is it time to move on? What does it mean locally to be responsive to God in East Oxford? Some, some, some people think that um, um, we are a, um, uh, a disconcertingly young church. Actually, we are no younger in our cross-section um, than the, the East Oxford around. This is 
how we are likely to be if we are to represent East Oxford. We need to embrace that, live with that. It's part of God's responding to the culture that we adopt some more youthful styles than I'm comfortable with, I have to say. Then I'm old in East Oxford. Or, um, uh, uh, do you remember back in Acts chapter 2 that uh, um, Peter explained that uh, the work of the Spirit was the fulfilment, he said, of a prophecy in which um, your young men will dream dreams, uh, will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. That sort of radical newness that is that characterises the church. One wag once put on a, on a church notice board, uh, the young men may see visions, the old men may dream dreams, but don't worry, the middle-aged will run the church. We can't afford it. If we are to be responding to what inner East Oxford is like. Are we prepared to move on? Over the next decade, actually, the number of students, particularly international students in East Oxford, is likely to greatly increase. And the question that must face us with this, as with every change, is will we... Will we stand with our temple mentality to say and say we will not move and other people must come to God or will we be tabernacle Christians who move on and reach out into uncharted territory? On our doorstep there are Thousands of Muslims who would never set foot in a building which was labelled as a church. Does it need, does our church building need to be labelled as a church when that's not its main function? When it actually inhibits ministry? Will we move on? We live in a time when the word evangelical actually, um, which is in our name, stands in the wider world for bigotry, imperialism, legalism. It's a great word actually, that I'm proud in some ways to have, but it has been hijacked by our culture so that actually in the wider world it speaks messages that we would not want it to speak. Should we try and reclaim its meaning or is it lost? Should we find other ways to communicate by the name of the church what we stand for? Will we move on? And, and you see, some people might protest, oh, that's just packaging, what, what you call the church, what you call the church building, and uh, all of those things. But Stephen, you see, is saying packaging is important. The temple spoke of something very specific, centralised, culturally fixed, immovable worship. So, says Stephen, it had to go. God's people are tabernacle people. Or what about you personally? Are you prepared as Abraham was to heed the call of God on your life and go to a strange place that you do not know? Are you prepared to accept as Joseph did 
that though the circumstances he endured may have been deeply difficult and trying, actually even in those God was still there. God was still using him as he was pushed and prodded and moved against his will to another place. Because God went with him. Can you imagine God working through your difficult circumstances? As you feel yourself pressed into unknown territory? Are you prepared like Moses was? To take responsibility, to make mistakes, certainly as he did, but to learn from them and discover that you can speak for God still. And you can go with God wherever he takes you. He will be there. Oh, well, desperately, desperately needs missionaries. Could you go? Our country has a massive need for pastors and full-time Christian workers. Could you go? Our world desperately needs people who live out their lives in their daily work for the glory of God and do not choose where they go and what job they do by the status it gives them in society or the money that it, that, that, that it gives them or any other thing but that I want to go where God calls me. Will you go? God is always calling his people to move on. Two things we need to know from Stephen's life, just very briefly. If we are to be able to follow that calling, first is this. People will always oppose that. We haven't had time to point that out as Stephen makes it plainer and plainer in his talk. He begins by saying that Joseph was hated by his brothers for his visions. He points out that actually people hated Moses. We've seen that. And then as uh, his sermon gets to its crunch that actually they, standing there before him, stand in a long and difficult tradition of people who have opposed the God who moves people on. Stephen himself experiences what so many before him had. Verse 57, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Thousands of Christians every year today die for their faith still. And though um, it is very unlikely that uh, we are going to have to face death for our faith, surely that makes it all the more important and all the more easy to simply stand up for God 
and do what he calls us to do. Knowing that there will be opposition. For too many people, you see, people are big and God is rather small. People's response dominates our emotions and our thoughts. And what God thinks of it barely gets a look in. Well, let God be big in your heart and your mind. Let him be massive. Let his opinion be the primary driving force for you. See him as he really is. And see people as they really are. Puny, ineffectual, not able to do a single thing except by the will of God. And even if they kill us, and that is not likely to happen, but even if they kill us, we are safe in the hands of the living God. People will always oppose us. If we're going to be people who move on, remember that. We will always find there is a corner of our heart that opposes that too. Let's be clear about that. Becoming a church that is more and more responsive to the God who moves on is a painful business for us. Because just as we see in the Old Testament this desire of God's people to fix God in a temple, which he's not absolutely opposed to, there too is a desire in us to fix God into some comfortable place where we can be confident that we've got worship of God taped. And God wants to blow that apart and expose that opposition in our hearts for what it really is. Notice the, uh, the Stephen's opponents closed their ears. They would not hear the word of God because suddenly they saw the word of God was actually saying to them, God has always been moving on. So they screamed loudly and rushed at him. Heaven forbid that we should be like that. One other thing we need to have very clear in our minds. It's people who follow God like that as he calls them to, who see God. Every single human being in the world, actually, whether they know it or not, has a hunger for God's glory. It's a hunger to see God. And I hope we here, who are here as Christians, we have recognised that and we have seen that And we've seen that as our deepest need and our deepest desire and our greatest delight. If only we might see God. Well, that is reserved for those who follow him. Verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Perhaps he's saying, can't you see it, my brothers? Can't you see the God that I see? 
they can't because they will not follow God they will not allow God to move them on If you want to see God, if you want to know God, if you want a a vision of God's glory that really transfixes your heart, makes you alive, gives you life that you long for, then here's the way. Follow the God who is always moving us on. Let's pray. In a moment we're going to take bread and wine. Those things speak of forgiveness. The forgiveness won by Jesus on the cross. Because we need to be forgiven for our half-hearted following of Jesus. Those things speak of uh, nourishment. As we take bread and wine. Because we need the strength of God to keep us serving him and following him wherever he leads us. And they speak as well of a life, a whole age of following God and Christ wherever he takes us. Jesus promised, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So when he said, this is my body, eat. This is my blood drink. He was wanting us to realise afresh that in new places, in new situations, he's still with us.